Would you please open our Bibles first to Isaiah, Isaiah 59, and then we go to Ephesians chapter 6. So Isaiah 59, and then we go to Ephesians 6. And if you can stand, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? So Isaiah 59 says, starting verse 15, Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered, that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet, helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Now let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6, starting verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Please be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to the Lord. Some years ago, I was reading an article from The Atlantic. And the title of the article was, Could Body Armor Have Saved Millions in in the First World War? And the article goes on to talk about the importance of body armor, and especially helmets during the First World War. And says, it took two long years of death before... European armies even developed, deployed the helmets for their soldiers. Helmets should have been the flesh-urgent priority of all armies from the start. World War II wound studies show 20% of all reported injuries were to the head. Even though it's but 12% of our body area. World War I hospital reports also show about 20% to the head and thorax. And the, most of the head injuries are from the shrapnel, the fragments that come to the, the direction of the soldier and hits the head. It, even the bullet, depending on the curve that the bullet takes, the helmet can be an amazing protection to the head. And I'm not encouraging here, but many of you, I know, have seen Saving Private Ryan, that movie. And you remember, right in the, 
the beginning, the, the first scenes as they're coming to the Omaha, Omaha Beach, and they come to the, behind the sand there, and there's one soldier who is hit by a bullet right on the head, and he's saved by the helmet. Do you remember what he does? He takes his helmet, and he, he breathes with relief just to be hit by another one, and now he had no helmet to protect his head. The helmet is a vital protection against brain damage, especially concussion. The brain is arguably the most, one of the most important organs in our body. That's what orchestrates the whole body. Everything is flowing basically from the, from the brain in such a small organ and yet requires so much protection. That's how God made us. Even these bones here, how hard they are to protect the our brain, the head is so important that throughout these scriptures, it's used as a reference to the whole body. So sometimes just the head is a metaphor for the whole body. Helmets were crucial when dealing with military. If you ask me what a soldier looks like, I, my memory goes back when I was a little kid, especially growing up in Brazil, in my city, we had a, a, a massive army base by my house and they all dress green so they are always dressed green with that green helmet the metal green helmet so it's just a picture it's, every time you think about a soldier i was looking at the picture that was really cool uh the kids were drawing there and you can see the helmet is part of any soldier going to battle and Paul knows that, and he's applying what he knows from the Old Testament. He's applying now, and he's telling us that we need a helmet also, but not a helmet made with metal or Kevlar, but we need a spiritual helmet because we are in a spiritual battle. And that's what he's going to give us today. So as we come to Ephesians chapter 6, I just want to remind you of the context here that's important. Paul is coming to the conclusion of the letter. He told us about all the glories that we already have in Christ Jesus. Chapters 1 through 3. All the beautiful things that we have in Christ already. But remember, it has not been consummated. There is a between the inauguration and the consummation. Therefore, chapters 4 through 6 in Ephesians, Paul is now telling us that there is a way of walking as we are waiting for Christ to come and bring the consummation of all things. So there is a lifestyle required for Christians. And one of the things is to battle, to stand firm in what the Lord has given us. And that's all we see, especially from verses 10 through 14. The emphasis here is on standing. That's the main call that Paul has for the church. You stand. So verse 11, he says, stand. Verse 13, we stand. Stand. Verse 14, stand, therefore. And now the main verb is to stand. And all the other things are related to how we're going to stand. And as I was thinking about Paul's call for the church as God's army to stand in light of the salvation that the Lord has brought. A passage came to mind, and this passage is in Exodus. Very similar to what takes place with us today. So, for example, in Exodus 14, as they are at the shore of the, the, the Sea of Reeds, they're about to cross the Red Sea, the Lord says, 
And Moses said to the people, as the Lord is speaking through Moses, Fear not, stand firm. Look at that. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Meaning, stop murmuring, grumbling, shut up and watch what the Lord's going to do. That's what Moses is telling them to do. Because remember, they're always grumbling and complaining. Like, no, see what the Lord's going to do for you. So, the Lord fights for His people. The Lord will bring salvation. And that's what happens once they cross the Red Sea. They sing a song to the Lord. That's basically the first hymn that we have in the Scriptures. And in Exodus 15, after they cross the sea, we see Exodus 15, verses 1 through 3, says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, Oh, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He is my salvation. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. So you see the vocabulary is very similar to what Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 6. And actually Isaiah, as we read in Isaiah 59, Isaiah develops the the whole theme of the Exodus. And Isaiah applies to a new Exodus that the Lord will bring to His people. So there will be, Isaiah speaks of a new and better Exodus. That the Lord will come and rescue His people from not only the exile from Babylon, but from the exile of sin. And that's where Isaiah goes back, and that's what Paul is doing. So Paul is just applying all this theology of the Old Testament now to Ephesians. So Paul is looking at Jesus Christ as our Passover lamb. We who have been redeemed by the Lord, just like in the first Exodus. And he's calling now, just like the Lord called Israel under the old covenant to stand firm. Now Paul calls the church to stand firm. The Lord is your salvation. Find your strength in the Lord. Similar manner, we who have been redeemed, have been saved, just like in the old covenant, we still still face enemies as we are in our pilgrim journey to a much better promised land. So just like under the Old Covenant, they they saw the salvation, the redemption, and yet they had to stand firm and and face battles. So also we under the New Covenant. And in this journey, as we are moving to a better promised land, the Lord gives us the perfect armor for the battles that we have. So, as we continue here, we come to number five, the helmet of salvation. We look at the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. We look at the feet being prepared with the readiness of the gospel. And last Lord's Day, we look at the shield of faith. And today we come to number five, the helmet of salvation. And Paul says, here's the ESV says, and take the helmet of salvation. It was interesting. Last night we were reading this passage and the kids I said, what does verse 17 say? Says, and, and they just said, the helmet of salvation. I was like, no, there's something else there. It's just the helmet of salvation. No, there's a verb there. And that verb is very important. 
the verb is used for receiving or taking to your arms. So, for example, Simeon, when he, he receives baby Jesus in the temple, do you remember? That, that's the same Greek word that, that he welcomed baby Jesus into his arms, the Messiah. Or when Jesus is celebrating the Last Supper and he takes that cup, he's welcoming that cup that symbolized the wrath coming upon him for the pardon of his people. So it's a picture of welcoming something, receiving something. And that's very important because salvation is a gift that we receive. We take into our arms because God has given us. So there is a parallel as I was working through this verse, comparing with verses 8 and 9 from, from chapter 2. So Paul says in chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved, look at salvation, through faith... It's not your own, it's the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. So you have this picture of gift, salvation, faith. And then you move to chapter 6. He says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of what? Faith is repeating the same vocabulary in which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and receive as a gift the helmet of salvation. So you see the parallel between chapter 2 and 6. And here we see the beauty of this paradox where salvation is a gift, and yet the verb is in the imperative implying that we must act. We do our part. We receive, we embrace the gift that God has given us. And Paul tells us to receive, welcome, the helmet of salvation. The helmet, just the Greek word is for peri, Peri, around, kephalia, head, something that goes around your head to protect. So the primary purpose of a helmet is what? Protection. But there was also an aspect of the helmet that was identification. Arms would wear the same helmet to identify the soldier. So they knew by the use of helmets. So you have identification and protection. And those are very important things as we develop here and this is the story of the helmet of salvation. Uh, in just briefly, just so you are mindful, in First Thessalonians, in the letter to the Thessalonians, First Thessalonians five eight, Paul speaks about the helmet, but as the hope of salvation. So Paul talks once again about the helmet as the hope of salvation, connecting helmet and salvation. And why is Paul talking about helmet of salvation? Is he creating that? It's just his own idea. You see, he could talk about what? The shield of salvation. But he talks about the helmet of salvation. Why? Do you remember what we read earlier? Isaiah 59. So Paul is actually going to the Old Testament and applying what he knows from the Old Testament. Uh, so here's Paul's use of Isaiah 59. And we read, and I'm going to read again. It says, he, the Lord, saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and what? And a helmet of salvation. So Paul is borrowing the imagery. And let me remind you that Isaiah is not creating that. Isaiah also is borrowing from other texts from the Old Testament. So, since the book of Genesis, God is painted as a warrior fighting for his people. 
Or if, if you're taking notes, you can write down Psalm 18. Psalm 18 is a beautiful picture of the Lord coming as a warrior. And He comes and He has the dark clouds. As the dark clouds as His chariots. And His clothing, darkness, wrath, comes painted as a mighty warrior. So what Isaiah is saying is, there was nobody to bring salvation. The Lord is looking around. There is no one who is righteous. There is no one who can accomplish salvation. So what does the Lord do? He comes. He comes in the person of His arm. That is the Messiah who comes and fight for the salvation of His people. So that's what we see in verse 17. When the Lord puts on the helmet of salvation, it implies that He is embodying His Putting on the victory that his people need. But salvation, you see, we talk about righteousness. We talk about faith. Salvation also is one of those words that we are always using. And oftentimes we know very little about salvation. Right? So, so, for example, someone might come to Tracy and say, Tracy, you guys are always talking about salvation, being saved. What do you mean by salvation? What is salvation? Right, somebody comes to you, Lee, Lee, you're always, I, 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 was, I saw you listening to some song talking about salvation. What do you mean by being saved? How would you answer that? How would most people going to church today answer what salvation is? If you ask most churchgoers, what is salvation? For most people, salvation is a happy life, right? That's what people understand about salvation. A happy family, a happy budget, a happy comfort. That's the idea behind being saved. That's why people are offering Jesus so you can have a better family, so you can have better finances, you can have better friends, a better home. And th that becomes the idea behind salvation. But actually, when you look at the concept of salvation throughout the scriptures, it's primarily military. So, for example, the New Bible Dictionary notes that the notion of salva salvation emerged from the Exodus, indelibly stamped with the dimension of God's mighty acts of deliverance in history. Exodus is the paradigm of salvation. When you think about salvation, in, you go back to Exodus to understand. So, for example, in Exodus 14, 13, we read, and Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see what? The salvation, that's military. The Lord's coming to rescue His people. So salvation is primarily a military concept. And that might be kind of frustrating for many people. Military, battle. It's not that God doesn't like war and bloodshed. But that's how salvation is primarily pictured in the scriptures as a military concept. God coming to rescue his people. And actually, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3 is the first place in the Bible where we have a theology of salvation, where the Lord promises that the seed of the woman will come to do what? To save his people by doing what? Yeah, there will be a battle, and that's the idea, the battle between the seed of the woman and the serpent. And it's a bloody battle 
where the serpent will take a bite of the hues of the Messiah, bringing a violent death. And at the same time, that Messiah will crush the serpent's head and conquer the serpent. So you can see that the, the, as you think about salvation, you go back to Genesis chapter 3, and the idea there is military, a war, a battle between the seed of the woman and the serpent. So you could say that, or even when the Lord saves Israel from Egypt. Think about the Lord saving Israel from Egypt. That's going back to Genesis chapter 3. It's a picture of Genesis chapter 3. Because, remember Pharaoh? What animal did he have on his head? Yes, a snake, a cobra. That's the picture. And the Lord coming, so the Exodus is just a picture, it's a type of the victory that will come in Jesus as the Lord is saving His people from the seed of the serpent and rescuing them through war. So we could say that the whole Bible is the drama of salvation, the drama of redemption. It's, it's a story of war, of God saving His people. As we think about salvation, salvation has three main concepts throughout the Scriptures. First of all, we need to be saved from someone or f from something. So, look at that. When people ask you, what is salvation? What do you mean by be saved? First thing you've got to remember, you're always saved from somebody or from something. Right? So, that's the first thing to keep in mind. We need to be saved from something, from somebody. And we, and that's something that we forget... Our greatest enemy before salvation is whom? God's wrath. So the first thing we need to be saved from is what? God Himself. We need to be saved from God's wrath. And of course, then we can add there that we are going to be saved from the domain of darkness, be saved from Satan's kingdom. We need to be saved from the penalty of sin. We need to be saved from the power of sin. And then we need to be saved from the practice of sin. But primarily, the first thing we need to be saved from is from God's wrath. So you think about saved from. Yeah, I, I, oh, you need to be saved from God's wrath. That's the first thing in presenting the gospel of salvation. People are under God's wrath outside Christ Jesus. We're not saved from, but we are saved to something or to someone. We are saved into something better. We are saved to a state of shalom. So think about salvation is from darkness and hostility into a life of light and harmony and love with the Lord. We're not only saved from, but we're saved to something. We are saved to dwell with God. We are saved from a life without God. To a life dwelling with God. That's the best life. Life with God. Life to dwell with the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father and His people. Sometimes in the New Testament, salvation, the word for salvation is used for healing. So sometimes Jesus heals somebody and it's used the same verb, sozo, to, to save. Why? Because that healing is a picture of salvation. That person is being transferred from the domain of death into the domain of well-being. From sickness, death, 
true well-being. That's why it's used as being saved. And not only so, you're saved from, to, and in. Remember these prepositions. You're saved from somebody, you're saved to somebody, and you're always saved in somebody. And who is that person? Christ. In the Old Testament, the believers were saved by trusting the promise of the Messiah. So they were, be- they were saved in Christ by believing that He was coming. And we are saved by believing in Christ that He has come to save us and He will come back again. So, I always keep in mind these three things about salvation. From, to, and in. So when people ask you, what is salvation? Or even when you're presenting the gospel, you know now how very basically people need to be saved from God's wrath, from the domain of darkness, into God's presence, into life with God. And this salvation can only be in Jesus. Amen? And, and as you look at salvation in Ephesians, that's very similar to what we see here. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And look at verse 13. Paul says, In Him, look at that, In, in Jesus, in Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, what? What does Paul say? What? Yeah, speak to me. Yes, the gospel of your salvation. In Jesus, the gospel, the gospel of your salvation. And he connects the good news, the beautiful news, the gospel of your salvation. So salvation is good news. Why? He's going to explain chapter 2. So if you keep reading, you're going to see why it's good news. Why salvation is inseparable from good news. And then Paul says in chapter 2, look at verse 5. First, he talks about who we are outside Christ in chapter, one, in chapter 2, in the beginning verses there. How we were dead in trespasses, children of wrath. And then he says, but God, look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, what? You have been saved. That's why it's wonderful news. Because it's all by grace. Salvation is by grace. It's a gift. And then he goes on. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been what? Saved. So for Paul, the gospel is beautiful news. Good news of salvation. Why? Because God has accomplished that on our behalf. Another aspect of salvation as we think about salvation. And that's going to help us understand why Paul is telling us to take up the helmet of salvation. Is that salvation, and here is the, the complexity of salvation. Salvation has three verb tenses. Past, present, and future. So the Bible tells about salvation as something accomplished in the past. So Paul says, for you are saved by faith. So there is something about salvation that was accomplished in the past. Was done. So Titus 3 says... But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He what? He saved us. When Jesus is on the cross and He says, It's finished. What, is, what does He mean? Salvation has been accomplished. So there is an aspect of salvation that's past. 
But there is also an aspect of salvation that's present. So, for example, we have passages throughout the New Testament where the Lord is saving His church. So, in Acts chapter 2, 47, And the Lord added to their number by, day by day those who were what? Being saved. Or 1 Corinthians 1, 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are what? Being saved is the power of God. And then also 1 Corinthians 15, you are being saved, or 2 Corinthians 2, 15, for those who are being saved. So there is this aspect of salvation that's present. God is constantly saving us, rescuing us from Satan's domain, from our own sin. Amen? So that's important. And that's why Paul can say, take up the helmet of salvation. Because you could say, Paul, pause, I'm already saved. Why are you telling me to receive, keep receiving every day the helmet of salvation? Because we need daily, we need daily to be saved by God's grace, to be rescued from our remaining sins and satanic oppositions. And there is also a future aspect when the salvation inaugurated will be salvation what? Consummated, yeah. So the inauguration of salvation one day will be consummated. Salvation into its consummation. And there is that beautiful hymn, hymn that we sing here there is a fountain filled with blood and then it says dear dying lamb remember dear dying lamb thy precious blood shall never lose its power and then he goes on until all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more be saved to sin no more and that's when there will be no more sin so we see Past, present, and future. And because Jesus has saved us, we can be certain that He will continue saving us from our present attacks and the present sin in our lives, and He will bring salvation to its end. And let me just, the last point here is that Jesus is our helmet of salvation. Jesus is the helmet. So we can see that by comparing Romans 13. And in Romans 13, verses 12 and 14, there is this parallel where Paul tells the Christians in Rome, put on the armor of light. That's verse 12. Put on the armor of light. And then in verse 14, he says what? Put on whom? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is to put on the armor of light? To put on Christ. Is the armor of God is the armor of light. So it's the same thing. So when you see what Paul is telling here is that we need to put on Jesus daily. Daily. The name Jesus, Jesus, the Greek, the Hebrew, Yeshua, means the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. When the Lord, when the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph, remember Joseph is doubting, he's questioning, Mary's pregnant, and the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and he tells Joseph, hey, you need to tell Mary to name him what? Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Notice that Jesus will not maybe save them. Not that Jesus will make people savable. No, Jesus will come to save his people. And he accomplishes that. The Lord throughout the Old Testament, he is called the Savior. So for example, in Isaiah 12 verses 1 through 2, 
you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my what? Salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He is my salvation. And this hymn from Isaiah, he's borrowing from Exodus 15. The Lord is my strength and my song, He is my salvation. And then you move to the New Testament, the New Testament says, There is salvation in no other name. For no other name can save but the name of Jesus Christ. So we see that salvation is a person, Jesus Christ. So you think about Jesus when he was conceived in the womb by the Holy Spirit. And that little baby in Mary's womb, you think that little head being developed was already clothed with a helmet of salvation. There was a baby warrior in that womb with a little helmet already coming to save and rescue his people. He was already dressed for victory, dressed for our salvation. And today Jesus gives us, by His grace, He gives us His own helmet. He gives the salvation that He has accomplished to His church. And I was thinking about, it's interesting that the picture of salvation comes to the head, right? Salvation, why not salvation in the feet? Why not salvation as a breastplate? Why in the head? It just came to my mind that, the great promise of Genesis 3.15 was that the Messiah would conquer how? How? By crushing the head of the enemy. That's fascinating. The, the picture of us wearing a helmet of salvation <laughs> is actually provoking Satan by reminding him that he was defeated by, head, by having his head crushed. While our head is protected in Christ Jesus with the salvation that he has brought. So you think about Goliath. He comes with his helmet and he's pictured as this gigantic snake, this serpent. Talks about the scales. And, and the word is for, the same word used for a snake. He comes as this gigantic snake and he has a helmet. And what happens to him? He's crushed. Where? Salvation comes by hitting his head and then David later beheads him. Going back all the way to where? Genesis 3. The picture of God bringing salvation by smashing, crushing the skull of our enemy. And that's all we have in Christ Jesus. The helmet of salvation. And every time we as a church, we're putting on Christ Jesus on our head. I can only imagine how angry Satan gets. Because he has a fatal wound on his head. He knows his time is short. So, as we think about the beauty of this helmet of salvation, I think about Colossians chapter 3 where Paul tells us, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ Jesus, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then he says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ Jesus. So we must be constantly, as a church, constantly be setting our minds in the heavenlies where Christ Jesus is. That's to put on the helmet of salvation. Always be mindful of who Christ is, what He has accomplished for us. And let me tell you, Satan loves 
loves to attack our head. He comes with some mighty blows against our head. And we must have our heads protected. In Christ Jesus, thinking where Christ is in the heavenly places, so much garbage comes against our heads. So I just want to remind you to be careful. Be careful with your heads. And what you do privately, what you do individually affects the whole body and community. So the garbage you're placing inside your head and letting Satan attack your head will affect us as an army, as a community of God's people. So the helmet of salvation also identifies us as a group of people whose thinking is immersed in Christ. When people look at us, they see our heads with one helmet. And this helmet is Jesus Christ. So when people come to this church, when they see us, when they talk to us, they got to see a people with a head covered with Jesus Christ. He's our helmet. As we all together as a church receive the helmet of salvation, we are reminded that the, all the power of salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification belongs to the Lord Jesus. And that we will avoid any sort of legalism. Think that we can somehow manipulate God to save us, that we can accomplish salvation by our own doings. No, Christ alone has accomplished that. Amen? So, and I just want to finish here by bringing this. We're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. And I just want to remind us how the Lord's Supper is inseparable from salvation. What are we doing in the Lord's Supper but celebrating the salvation of the Lord? And just like the, we saw the salvation, just think about the Lord's Supper for a moment. Think about the different names that the Lord's Supper has. And all those names are connected to what we, are, we have in salvation. So, for example, the communion. We call the Lord's Supper communion. Why? Because we celebrate our salvation from life away from God's presence into a life of union and communion with God and His people. That's why it's communion. We were saved from a miserable life away from God, away from God's people, into a life of communion with Him. Another name that, the, that we have, or the name that we are often refer to, the Lord's Supper. Supper. What is a supper? A meal. Why? We have been saved from spiritual starvation. And now we have a supper with the Savior. The bread and the cup symbolize a glorious meal. We have been saved from famine to feasting with the Lord. Or the Lord's table. The Lord's table. We are no longer sitting at the table with demons. Feasting with sin and, and demonic forces, but actually you're sitting with the Lord and His people. So you see, all these aspects are related to salvation and the glory of salvation. Not only that, we think about the salvation as past, present, and future. The same with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's table is a celebration of salvation that the Lord accomplished. So we look back, we sit together at the Lord's table, and you're looking back and remembering the wonderful salvation that the Lord has accomplished. But also present. Salvation has this aspect of present. The Lord's Supper also has an aspect of present delivering us. 
So I put here the Lord's Supper is God's means to continue saving us. Just like preaching, singing, praying, fellowship, water baptism, all the ordinances of Jesus are His ordinary means of grace in sanctifying and saving us. Amen? That's a beautiful ordinance that He has given us. He keeps delivering us from the evil one and from the evil within us by obeying His commands, singing, praying, partaking of the Lord's Supper. And also there is a future aspect in the Lord's Supper. As we are celebrating the Lord's Supper, we are looking ahead to the final supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we are going to be sitting face to face with the Lord Jesus, eating with Him, enjoying His presence face to face, no longer by faith, but by sight. So we have these aspects of looking back, looking to the present, looking ahead. And also, looking around. The Lord's Supper calls us to look around to each other. And behold the beauty of salvation that the Lord has given us. A, a very loving family to walk together as we await the consummation of His salvation. So, as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, let's keep these things in mind. I want to remind you the Lord's Supper is for those who have been saved, those who have been baptized, those who are in life, in a church. And in all this, we celebrate the glorious salvation that the Lord has given us. Amen. So let us pray. Ask the Lord to prepare our hearts. Oh, Lord, we thank you. We thank for your word that washes us, transforms us, builds us up. Thank you for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. It's a glorious means of being mindful of your gracious work in saving us. I pray your blessing upon this time when we all sit together at your table and fellowship with you. Thank you for delivering us, saving us from fellowship with the kingdom of darkness. And bringing us into fellowship with the king of light and the kingdom of love. Thank you so much, Lord. We pray your blessing upon the bread, upon the cup. Thank you for calling us to partake of this glorious ordinance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.